Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and this is the fifth book of the New Testament written by Dr. Luke. And uh, some people think that Luke was a, uh, a Gentile. I think he was a Jew, and he got saved, and he was equipped to write the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles. So Acts of the Apostles, as I say, is the fifth book in the New Testament. And let's start today's broadcast, if we may, in Acts chapter 17, please. Now when they had passed through Amphilippus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. This is apologetics, and Paul, of course, is a Jew, preaching to the Jews, and it says his manner was to go in to the local synagogue, from verse 1 being Thessalonica, modern-day Greece, and for three Sabbath days, so Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, he is reasoning with them out of the scriptures. The Jewish Tanakh, of course, opening and alleging. I like that word, alleging. You allege this, or you allege that. It's a word we use all of the time. That Christ must needs have suffered. Written about back in the Old Testament, of course. And risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. The Jews knew that the Messiah would come. And uh, that he would have to die for their sins. And we call this substitutionary atonement. And I want to spend a few moments this morning discussing substitutionary atonement. Because I do a lot of street work. And I speak to a lot of people. And you'd be surprised how self-righteous people are. When it comes to somebody doing something for you. Some people say, well, I don't want somebody to do something for me. And some people say, no, I don't want the government to support me with welfare. But let's look at a few examples to see if that's the case. Let's say, for example, you are nine months pregnant and you get on a bus, it's very crowded and you're hot and somebody stands up and says to you, would you like to have my seat? Now, most women would say, thank you very much and take the opportunity and sit down. Now, some would say, no, thank you, I'd rather stand and faint. But most women who are nine months pregnant would be quite happy to take the offer of a seat on a crowded bus and sit down. Let's say you're standing at a bus stop and it's cold and it's wet and you're late for work. And somebody drives up to you, pulls over, and says, would you like a lift to work? I'm going your way. Most people would say thank you very much and get into the car and head off to their place of employment. Very few people say, no, thank you. I would rather stand at my bus stop, get soaking wet, and arrive at work late. Let's say you're driving on the motorway and you hit a car incident, you have a car crash, and you rush to the hospital, and it's made very clear to you that you need a blood transfusion. Now, most people would say, okay, I'll take it. Very few would say, no, I'm happy to die. Let's say you have a sick child, and they rush to the hospital, and they too are in need of an operation, or they are at home suffering with an ear infection, which can be very painful. Most parents would take the pain in place of their child. Let's say you have a mortgage, and you've gone into arrears, and you've got 28 days to make payment, and the bank says to you, unless we receive payment within 28 days, you are going to be homeless. Now, of course, if somebody comes forward to, offers, to offer you help, you'll take it, of course. Now, I'm just giving you some examples of somebody who is desperate and has been offered a helping hand. Let's say you have a tooth infection and you go to your local dentist 
and they say to you, I can't see you until next week. And you're desperately in pain. And somebody says, actually, you can have my appointment. Now, most people say, okay, thank you. I'll take your appointment. Some people are self-righteous and they say, no, thank you. I'll go home and suffer for a week. But most people say, thank you very much. It's very kind. So I put it to you this morning that when push comes to shove, most people will happily accept substitutionary atonement. Most people will quite happily take help from somebody else. It could be a lift to work. It could be a seat on a crowded bus. It could be somebody else's dental appointment. It could be a blood transfusion. And my Bible says that Christ came to die for sinners. This is the only way that God can really receive glory. Not only does he give grace to those that are going to be saved, but he dies in their place as well. So I think a lot of people are very self-righteous when it comes to having somebody do something for them. And yet, you wait till you're on skid row. You wait till you've hit the buffers. You wait till you've hit rock bottom. You won't be so picky then. And you will take a helping hand, I guarantee you. But for most people, it'll be too late. You wait till you're on your sickbed, and you're dying. And you can't help yourself. And somebody that says to you, just believe in yourself. Or just look within yourself. Or just try and dig deep for that inner person within yourself. You know that isn't going to work. It won't cut the mustard. You need somebody to help you. You need somebody to die in your place. You need a saviour. And this is what Paul is doing here. It says for three Sabbath days, he goes into the local synagogue and he witnesses to them apologetics. Now he was a Jew, saved of course, witnessing to unsaved Jews. And you would have thought that that would have been pretty easy for him to do. And you would have thought that the Jews would have been able to receive the gospel from him. Far from it. Now I speak to Muslims and every so often they play the Arabic game with me. And they say, well, in the original Arabic, quote-unquote, which of course doesn't exist, but anyway, in the original Arabic, quote-unquote, the text says this from the Quran, or the text says that from the Quran. Now, I'm not an Arabic. I mean, I don't speak Arabic, I should say. I'm not a Muslim. I'm, I don't speak Arabic. And most Muslims in the UK don't speak Arabic either, I should say. But Paul was a Jew. So they tried that with him. If the Jews said to Paul, well, actually, Paul, in the original Hebrew, or in the original Aramaic, the text says this or that, it wouldn't have been possible to pull the wool over his eyes because he was a Jew. He was a scholar. And yet he too struggled to witness to his own people to get them saved. And he would have known all the answers, he would have known all the roots, and yet he wasn't able to win jury en masse to the Saviour. And yet try he did. So I look at verses 1, 2 and 3, I see Paul and Silas heading to Greece, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica. Often they go into local synagogue of the Jews. They were probably invited. And for three days, Paul is witnessing to them. As I say, it's apologetics. Use a scripture to argue your case. And sometimes apologetical work is the way forward. Other times it's not. If you're speaking to an average man in the street, I wouldn't waste five minutes with apologetics. I'd go straight to the heart of the issue. And I would use the Ten Commandments to show them they're no good. But if I'm witnessing to a Jew, or maybe a Catholic, then I will use apologetics to do the work of convicting them of their sin. Opening and alleging, verse 3, that Christ must needs have suffered. Son of Joseph, first coming, and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preached unto you, is Christ, Messiah. They knew that the Messiah was coming, as I say, Isaiah 53, and yet the truth of the matter is that they weren't ready for him. And that will be replicated, duplicated, 
at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we were told in Luke 18, when the Son of God comes back, will he find any faith on the earth? And the response, of course, is very little. Because they weren't ready for the first coming, and they won't be ready for the second coming. And that includes the Jews as well. But look at verse 4, please. And some of them believed, and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. This is unusual. Because most churches are filled with women. Of any denomination, it makes no difference. And yet here, Paul and Silas are cited. No reference to Timothy yet. No reference to Dr. Luke also. And it says how a devout group of Greeks believed, but of the chief women, not a few. Somewhat unusual, as I say, because women normally are interested in religion. Look at any denomination, Catholic, Protestant, uh, Pentecostal, even the cults are filled with women. It's sometimes harder to get men into the, into the door of a local church. Women are more interested in religion than men. But here it says, the chief women, not a few. Five, but the Jews, which believe not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. He got a picture of thugs and bigots. There's another word for them. It says, these Jews didn't believe. Like back in Matthew 27, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, riffraff we call them today, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. They're on the cusp of almost putting this man to death. Mob rule. And sometimes Christians are referred to as being intolerant, bigoted, so on and so forth, but that's not the case at all. We have the truth. We preach the truth. We do what we can when we can. We don't always get it right. Okay, fair enough. And sometimes our own lives fall short. Okay, fair enough. But that doesn't change the message. And here you've got jury, unbelieving, of course, putting a mob together to thwart the work of Paul and Silas. No doubt the devil was behind this. This is a pattern we find throughout Scripture. First Samuel 8, the Jews reject God the Father. Acts 7, they reject God the Holy Spirit. Matthew 27, they reject God the Son. This is my whole point I'm trying to make this morning, that first of all, Jewry wouldn't receive the truth for the most part, and secondly, unless you are humbled, unless your heart has been opened to the truth, it's all going to be in vain anyway. Six, and when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. What they're saying, in essence, is that Caesar is their God. You find that back in the Gospels, didn't you? We have no king but Caesar. This is a picture of treason. It's bad enough the Jews wouldn't receive the Messiah. It's bad enough they are whipping up a crowd of reprobates. But on top of all of that, they are now saying there is no other king but Caesar. Now Caesar offered himself as deity, like the pharaohs did. So not only was Caesar a king, not only was an emperor, he was also deity. He thought he was divine. He thought he was one of the gods. So here you've got the Jews, apostate, unbelieving of course, offering Caesar as their god. Eight. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Go back to the 1930s. 
you've got Nazi Germany on the march, and you've got the Nazis storming meetings and causing riots, and then turning around and blaming the communists. It's an old trick, nothing new under the sun. And here, this mob rule are going around causing problems, causing mischief to blame the Christians. This is what Nero did when Rome burnt, he blamed the Christians. And sometimes when Christians do street preaching, they get under the skin of people. And we get accused of causing instability, divisions. We are referred to as being somewhat unloving. But the truth of the matter is that those divisions have always been there. And will always be there. All we are doing is simply shining a light in a very dark place. And that, of course, is what is causing people to lash out at you. Nine. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. Could be a bail bond of some kind. Some kind of payment has taken place. Possibly some bribery, but more likely to be a bail bond. It shows the power that the Jews had in Thessalonica. And of course, Paul right first and second Thessalonians. And yet, if you were to go to Greece today, it's pretty much on its knees. If you were to go to Thessalonia or Thessalonica today... It's pretty secular. There's no Christian presence there. But here, this group of unbelieving Jews have forced Jason to make a payment of some kind, and then he was allowed to go. This is amazing. 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas by night. This is a theme that we found over the last several months, how the church was run by the brethren, the leaders of the church. could be the Church of Jerusalem or the Church in Antioch. And this book, Acts of Apostles, all 28 chapters, was the blueprint as to how the early church would function. But of course, we know as the church progressed, as the apostles died away, that things became rather apostate. So it's not possible, I think, to duplicate what we are reading this morning it's nice to say that we could go back and try and recreate this but i don't think that's the case i think we're too far down the road now but for the early church this was how it operated this is how they functioned the apostles of course were the recipients of progressive revelation that's why paul and co went up to jerusalem acts 15 to clarify this whole works and law uh, or grace and law situation this whole subject of dietary restrictions so on and so forth because it was the apostles who were receiving progressive revelation but now we have the scripture which is our final authority so when you come across catholics for example who say that when the pope speaks ex cathedra concerning morals and faith that somehow he's infallible that's a foolish statement to make it's also relevant not to mention heretical because the scripture is our final authority but for this church acts 1 to 28 the apostles were the final authority they would speak audibly, or verbally I should say, and what they would preach was acted upon. And as they got older, they wrote their epistles, their books, which became part, and ultimately the entire, old, uh, excuse me, the entire New Testament canon. But that's why it's important for us to understand that the apostles were in the driving seat. That's why it's important for us to note how the apostles were the final authority, pre the writing of the New Testament. But the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night unto Berea, under the cover of darkness, 
who come in thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. Once again, they go back into a local synagogue to preach to the Jews. Now, Paul's remit was to the Gentiles. And yet, of course, when he was able to, he'd witness to the Jews, his own people. Now, I've been saved 14 years, and most people I speak to are non-Catholics. I came from a Catholic background, and of course, if I meet a Catholic, I witness to a Catholic. But most of the people I speak to are from non-Catholic backgrounds. So Paul, of course, will go to the Jews, as when he can, and then he'll go to the Gentiles, because that was his remit. Look at verse 11, please. These are more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They're open-minded, and they got the scriptures, by the way. Not the originals. They got the scriptures, and they are checking them out daily, which is great, because Paul was an apostle. He doesn't say, listen, I'm infallible. What he preaches to them, they are checking out in light of scripture, which means quite simply they're going back to the Old Testament and they're reading it. Now, whether they're reading it in the Greek, being the Septuagint or the Hebrew is up for debate. I personally think the Septuagint is post-Christ, not pre-Christ. But for those that hold to the Septuagint being pre-Christ, they will argue that this group of Bereans are reading the Jewish Tanakh from the Greek Septuagint. That's what they would offer as being what is spoken about here. But I don't think the Septuagint was written uh, pre-Christ. I think it was written post-Christ. But they are searching the scriptures daily, whether those things were so, which is what it's all about. You see, there's no one-man pope. There's no one-man leader who is infallible. The scripture is infallible. The scripture cannot be broken. And that's why I keep making the point that for the early church, they started with the apostles when they spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were infallible. And what they wrote is infallible, present tense. It's still infallible. And that's why it was important, as I say, for Paul to go up to Jerusalem to speak to Peter and James. Not just for his own sake, but for the sake of the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria. Let's read on, please. 12. Therefore many of them believed, also of honourable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. This is typical Sometimes you will preach the gospel and see a response straight away. Other times you won't. But here you've got Paul preaching to the Greeks. Academia. They've got Plato, Aristotle. They've got all the greats going back to Alexander the Great. And they, they thought there was something special. And of course they were. Because the Jews in the first century spoke Koine Greek. Greek was a language of the first century, not Hebrew. And of course Paul is going to speak to the Greeks probably in Greek. He could do it. He could speak to the Hebrews in Hebrew and the Greeks in Greek. And he probably spoke multiple languages. In fact, he would tell you that in 1 Corinthians, how he spoke with many languages, even with the language of angels. And some people think that's speaking about tongues. I don't think so. He went to the third heaven, 2 Corinthians 12. And he said he was caught up to the third heaven and he saw things which he wasn't able to utter. So it's quite possible that when he was in heaven, he was able to communicate with his angelic hosts. This is just a private hypothesis of mine. I can't prove it. But here, the context is Greece, some believed, also of honourable women, which were Greeks and of men, not a few. Of course. Who wants to believe in a crucified carpenter? For the Jews, it was foolishness. It was a stumbling block. They couldn't conceive of what it meant. And for Greeks, it was a joke. But go back to my earlier comments at the beginning of this message... When push comes to shove, you need somebody to stand in your place. I don't care who you are. If you are desperate, you will take it. If you are homeless and somebody stops to offer you food, you will take it. 
In fact, I saw some statistics a while ago how there are thousands of families in America homeless. Thousands upon thousands of families in America which are homeless. The most wealthiest country in the world, and they've got a huge homeless problem. Poverty. Now, I'm not going to spend any time this morning discussing the role of the government, but I'm simply making the case that if you're honest with yourself, you know that when push comes to shove, you will take the helping hand. And if you haven't been in that position, maybe you will be one day. But until then, don't be so pious. Don't be so quick to say, no, thank you. I'll do my own thing. I'll take my own chances. But this is the truth, isn't it? Most people think they're good enough to make it to heaven. Most people think that if there is a God, that when they arrive in eternity, they will be able to reason with this God which they claim to believe in. Woe be unto that man. You had a perfect man come to the earth. He lived a life that you and I could never live. And he died an awful death. He took the pain on himself. And he said, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? That's a picture of the Saviour becoming sin. The scripture says he tastes death for every man. He went into hell itself, not to be tortured, not to be born again. But he went into hell to proclaim victory over the captives. And if you want to snub that, if you want to pass it up, if you think you're good enough to stand in the presence of God, it's a very dangerous and blasphemous attitude to have. But that's your choice. God isn't going to force himself on anybody. Look at 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stood at the people. They're jealous. They're infuriated by this. Now you would think that if somebody's wealthy and has a big house, that would cause jealousy. You might think if a man has a trophy wife who's very pretty, that would cause jealousy. Or if she has a very wealthy husband, that would cause jealousy. But sometimes just being successful at preaching causes jealousy. Sometimes ministries are jealous of one another. I sometimes watch the uh, Christian television stations that you're all aware of. I don't endorse them, but I sometimes watch them with interest and I see different ministries competing with each other. And some of these ministries are very wealthy. I can think of three people that earn $100 million each per year. I won't name them, but three well-known televangelists which make $100 million each per year. They have private jets, big houses, and they cause other ministries smaller than themselves to be jealous. Now, of course, you can understand that. That's human nature. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I mean, the, the Bible says not to covet anything, not to be jealous of anyone or anything. But you can understand it, can't you? You can understand it. And here, these Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached to Paul at Berea. Of course. Paul was probably a street preacher, like I am. So they come thither also and stare at the people. Mob rule again. And they're going to cause a great level of hostility to be thrown at Paul and co. Look at verse 14. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. Paul gets put on a boat. And this isn't the first time that the church had to step in to rescue Paul. Now Paul was a very unusual man. He got saved later in life. He got saved from the world of academia. It wasn't easy to discredit him because he knew Hebrew, Aramaic, and had Arabic been around, he would have known that too. He was a linguist. He was a very bright man, a very great man, a very humble man. And yet something about Paul got under the skin of unsaved people. So the church have had to step in and rescue him because Paul was a very zealous man. He had a great zeal for the Lord. And I spoke about John Wesley a few weeks ago who would preach around the UK and he would go into a typical town like William Booth, preach the gospel and they would try to kill him. And Booth was physically assaulted, knocked out, I believe, had concussion. John Wesley was dragged around 
The town of Wigan, on one occasion, by a horse, almost killed. Mordecai Ham was preaching back in the era of Prohibition, and some people stormed the stage that he was speaking at, or speaking on. They tried to kill him because he was speaking against alcohol, he was preaching against sin. That's a job of a street preacher. That's a job of a Bible believer, to get under the skin of unsaved people. Not because we're holier than now, not because we're something special, but because we are a reflection of our Saviour. And if we don't reflect our Saviour, if we can rub along with the we can rub along with the world in uh, you know without any kind of problem, then there's something wrong with us. But I don't think we can rub along with the world indefinitely, maybe temporarily. But if we can do it indefinitely, there's something wrong with us. But I'll finish here in verse 14, just offer one final thought, because it refers to the brethren, a group of brothers in the Lord, who sent Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. Now Timothy's back on the scene. This is a mystery to me. Sometimes we read about Timothy. Other times we don't. I don't quite understand what Dr. Luke is uh, doing when it comes to offering their presence and then omitting their presence. Of course, they're their own lives. Maybe their own families. I don't know. But these 14 verses give you a snapshot of what happens when a group of Christians arrive in a local town and start preaching the gospel. Hostility, financial bail is needed, a rescue squad are sent in to extract Paul and co. Paul wasn't suicidal either. Some people think he was suicidal. Some people think that after he went to third heaven, he was in no hurry to go home, or he was no hurry, you know, he was no hurry to go back to the earth. He was quite happy to stay in heaven. Well, I don't know about that. There are other accounts in scripture where Paul was quite happy to stay on the earth. And he would say it was more beneficial to live for the brethren than to be with the Lord. But there you are, 14 verses from Acts 17. And we'll pick it up next week in Acts 17 verse 15.